to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 8. We went through the golden chain previously, and we saw chapter 8, remember chapter 7 has the stuff about, you know, look, I, I delight in the law of God, but I'm still sinning. My body is still doing evil things. I have habits that are built up, and who will deliver me from this body of death? And we're told that Christ will deliver us from the body of death. And chapter 8 is a bunch of tools of sanctification, a bunch of doctrines that if we believe them, they empower us in the inward man and help us to subdue our bodies, to bring them into subjection to the law of God. So that across time, old habits are put off, new habits are put on, skill is developed. This is the training in righteousness, the padia, or in, in Hebrew you have the masar, right? this idea of the training, the instruction in righteousness. And so, we consider these doctrines are necessary to discipline ourselves. Self-discipline is rooted in the belief of doctrine. And so we went through 14 tools of sanctification, 14 doctrines that are laid out in the earlier part of Romans chapter 8, that we need to have faith, we need to understand and believe what God has revealed. You can't please God without faith. Assurance of salvation, where you understand your guilt, understand the gospel, and out of gratitude, believing the gospel, you seek to do good works to glorify God. That assurance of salvation gives you strength to move forward. Having a confident desire, a hope that you will overcome sin. That you nourish your mind, nourish your faith by thinking on the revealed truths that God has given the acknowledgement of the obligation to obey the commandments of God. The fact that God gives negative discipline and that we can expect that. The fact that he gives positive blessing and we have expectation for that if we seek to do what God commands. But this psalm, we just sang, seems to kind of undermine that, right? right? Doing what God commands and here now there's all this suffering. Staying firm and suffering. And the end of chapter 8 will deal with that too. The fact that we are sons, we have the privileges of sons, we shouldn't feel like we have a slavish obedience to God, but rather the idea that we are sons and we get to obey, that we have the privilege of access being adopted and having the spirit that helps us to understand that God is our Father. Uh, The testimony of our own belief and of the spirit helping us to pray, giving us strength to pray. The future hope that we have of the resurrection and of the success of the church in the world as sons and heirs, that we will overcome the world, that we are heirs of the whole earth. The idea of looking at our present suffering and counting it as nothing compared to future glory, which will be touched back on here at the end of Romans 8. The idea that the goal of creation will be accomplished, that all of creation is kind of going through a sort of birth pangs, right? There's the suffering of labor as it's coming to the point of delivery with a sort of new life. The Spirit gives power to pray effectually in faith. These prayers actually will be answered. And then we consider the whole golden chain that God is unchangeably, omnipotently, and omnisciently seeking the good of the elect. He will bring it about. Now, let's consider... The text, the verses 31 through 39. Actually, I'm going to read back from verse 28. 
It's Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? God is for us. Who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He, not with Him, also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It's Christ who died. And furthermore, He's also risen. Who's even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Peril, sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, when we get to Romans 9, the immediate objection that follows is, well, yeah, what about the Jews? If you think there's a casting off of the Jewish church now, then what makes you think God's word is so reliable? So we'll deal with that next week. That's where it goes. So you see the interconnectedness of the text. Okay, so, but, but now we're going to deal with, all right, so suffering, right? Not that, not that big of a deal. Not, gonna, not, gonna, not even worth really comparing to the glory to come. Let's consider that. So follow along in the outline as we consider verse 39. Sorry, verse 31, forgive me. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Let's consider the line of reasoning here. What's a reasonable response to this glorious truth, this mercy, this liberality? Right. So what should we say to these things? And what, what happens is the tendency for us, rather than glorying in it, Right? Rather than following up all these truths with doxology, right? what we do is we tend to go, but what about, or what if? Right? What about, what if? It's like Paul can read your mind, right? You can read Romans, you're like, how did you know? How did you know that was the exact thought that I had? So, okay, what are you worried about? 
if God's in your favor, then it's impossible that anyone would ever do something that is against your interest. All right, that sounds a little bit too good. Seems unbelievable. Rose-colored glasses here. Well, okay, let's think about this. God, all-powerful, all-wise, He does everything He wants. He doesn't change, right? So He had a plan. We spent a lot of time talking about this plan. I gave you lots of large words in talking about the plan. Here's one that's in more plain English, and it gets mocked. Voltaire loved mocking this. God has made the best of all possible worlds. He has made the best logically possible cosmos. Does that mean that God is dealing with the problem of sin and he's responding to it? No. So you talk about the best of all possible worlds. Typically people are like, yeah, you know, just, this, is, this is all that's really possible with human freedom. And we talked about how human freedom is largely misunderstood, right? God controls everything that you do. Everything you think. The issue is his purpose of glorifying himself. Right? He, he has evil, he has suffering in the world for the purpose of displaying his justice and mercy. Justice, the punishment of the wicked as well as the rewarding of the righteous. Right? One half of that, punishment of the wicked, requires wickedness. Mercy, only the wicked get mercy. Only the wicked get mercy. So there have to be wicked people to give them mercy. So the purpose of glorifying himself, God's designed all things to be maximally excellent in their totality for himself and for those whom he has saved in Christ his Son. Now, we tend to look at localized things. We tend to look at this moment right now. We have a recency bias. God loved me, then why did this thing happen last week? Or last month? Or this year? I'm in the manufacturing business. When you make things, a lot of the times, people are interested in maximizing a localized thing. You have have different things that are in a series. You manufacture something at point A, B, C, D, and they're dependent on each other. And you go, look, we can make C really, really, really efficient. And you go, well, how, how about A and B and D? Because the thing has to go through all four steps to be made. And so if you look at the changes that you're talking about making to step C, you might realize, oh, that's going to slow down B and D. And so the products that get through the line in total will be less. And so in attempting to maximize something in a local way, there's a failure to maximize the system. The, the system becomes suboptimal. God is better than most industrial planners, and he can figure out optimization for the throughput. And what's the goal of the throughput here? His own glory. How many widgets of glory does he make? All of the widgets. Right? All of the widgets of his own glory, he makes them. And in making his own glory seen, making it displayed, he fits it all together so that they fit together for the best of the whole. 
And you go, well, that sounds unencouraging. What if I am a lamb to be slaughtered? And that just brings the whole good for him. Remember, we already talked about this. I have to remind myself a lot, so I figure I probably have to remind you. He seeks your good. If you believe this, if you believe the gospel, then you know he's seeking your individual good, not just the good of the system. And so if he's seeking your good, he is using all of these difficulties, all of these pains for your own good. He is using it to increase your own knowing of God and to increase your displaying of the knowledge of God. Familiar with William of Orange, the first one. William of Orange, you know, he he uh, he fought the the Spanish occupation of the Netherlands. Spent the last part of his life on that. He he was very powerful, very powerful man. Had the favor of the Spanish emperor. And he lost it in the process of resisting Spanish tyranny, trying to prevent the Spanish Inquisition from wiping out the Protestant cause there. The way he died glorifies God impressively. This is a man that led troops into battle. Didn't die in battle. This is a man who was in a great position of power. Didn't reign into his old age and die after a glorious reign. A Jesuit spy came to his home, asked him for money because he said he was hungry. And William of Orange gave him money. And this Jesuit spy used the money to buy pistols to kill William of Orange. For the rest of history, while William of Orange's story is told, it will be known that this Calvinist man, the man through whom the color orange became associated with Protestantism. Here, look at the the Irish flag. The orange on it represents Protestantism. You know that? This man, wherever his story is told, his death by the hand of someone who betrayed him who wanted to kill him for his resistance against the Spanish Inquisition and against Spanish tyranny and for the sake of preserving Protestantism in the Netherlands, where that story is told, do you think that glorifies God in a way that's peculiar and distinct as opposed to just if he'd been another man who died in battle, another man who had died after a long reign? At the time, I assure you that all those people who were worried about the Spanish defeating them, and the difficulty of finding a leader to replace him. But they were worried, and they thought, oh no, this great calamity has come upon the people of God. How will we possibly stand now without our great leader, our Prince of Orange? Your suffering is designed specifically for your own good and for the glory of God. What are you worried about? If God is in your favor, then it is impossible that anyone would ever do something that is against your interest. It was in William of Orange's interest to be assassinated by a Jesuit sent by the Spanish crown. It was in the interest of the people of God. It was in our interest. God could have designed a world without sin or suffering. 
He chose to have sin and suffering. He chose to have persecution of the righteous. He chose to bring about every pain you have ever suffered and every sin you have ever committed. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? Do you actually think that it is true? Do you think it was good that he did that? Do you believe that it was for your good? We talked last time about how suffering is from the curse for sin, and suffering is for testing to all men, and suffering is for the punishment of those who reject God. Suffering is for discipline for those who believe the revealed truths of God's word. It teaches. Sin is effectually from the decree of God. It's Father, if there's a, a person of danger, yes, you would cause those men that are in transit now to be effectual, to, to help them and to save them, and that you would glorify yourself in that. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Encourage that when you see men going by with sirens on. Pray that they do righteousness and that they be successful and that they save and preserve in good order. All right. Sorry for the interruption. Um, so sin is effectually from the decree of God. It's formally from the law of God. It's instrumentally from the choice of creatures, meritoriously from the creatures, and ultimately from the goal of the glory of God. If you believe the gospel, then you know that the glory of God is for you to know. Right? You, you are to know the glory of God. If you know these things, then you have what is good. If you have what is good, then you will never lose it and only increase in the possession of it. If you increase in the possession of what is good, then all sin is to show the foolishness of other choices when contrasted with the glory to be revealed in you. And the suffering you undergo is to show the temporariness and lightness of the affliction contrasted with the everlasting weight of the glory to be revealed in you. Right? Think about that. The suffering you undergo now is a contrast. The suffering you undergo now is a contrast to the glory to be revealed in you. It's a contrast. And those who suffer, suffer for themselves. No one else feels your pains. Some emotional views of God to say, Jesus feels your pain. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't feel your pain. He felt his own pains in his humanity. He suffered under the curse. And the penalty associated with wrath for sin was laid on him. He doesn't feel your pains. He understands them. In his divinity, he understood them. I mean, he, he's all-knowing. God understands. But he doesn't feel. One of the glorious things about God is that he doesn't change, which means he doesn't feel. He's impassable. That means he doesn't change. It means he doesn't have passions. You've heard of the, the passion of the Christ, right? He, he doesn't have pain. He doesn't suffer. The passion of the Christ is the suffering of the Christ. He's impassable. He doesn't suffer. Jesus only suffered in his humanity, not in his divinity. God does not suffer. He doesn't feel your pain. And that's glorious. It's glorious because he's unchanging. 
and it provides a security in the fact that his love does not change. And his love is not a feeling. His love is a rational attitude. He sets you as the object of his love, and he will not stop. He will continue in pursuing your good. He does not change. God shows his seriousness about being concerned for your good in sending his own son to be punished in your place. Is there anything else that's more valuable to God than his son? How about the cattle on the thousand hills in Lebanon? No, probably not. Maybe like the Solomonic Temple. Maybe he thought that was more valuable than his son. No, probably not. Is there anything? Is there, is there anything that he considers more valuable than his son? The answer is no. And he sent his son to die to pay for the sins of the elect, for the sins of the church. So how could we think that God would withhold any good thing from us having already given his son for us and for our good. Do you think this, do you see the stupidity of not believing that God is going to give you what is good if he's already given you what is good? If he's already sent his son to pay for your sins and has already given you the knowledge of him, do you really think he's going to then go, yeah, this was a bad idea. Knock over the sandcastle. Not going to happen. There's a steadiness and unchangeableness to God. His purposes continue. He counts the cost before he builds. He's already paid the cost. Right? This is like a non-refundable deposit that was 100% of the cost. And he doesn't just go, you know what? I'm good. It's okay, don't deliver. Don't deliver the goods. I don't want what I already paid for. He will give us all things. Do you see that God views his own interests as being united with our interests because of the fact that Christ represents us and because of the fact that he is seeking his own glory and he is causing us to be the seers of his glory? If he will give us all things, then how is that so? Our everlasting inheritance and our communal possession of all things in purpose, right? We have a shared possession of goal, and so we are obligated to work together. We have the communion of the saints. We have an individual possession as stewards, And so we operate together with recognition of that stewardship. We don't eliminate private property rights. It's established by the law. You shall not steal. The church and the saints as parts of the church will take possession of the inheritance in time before the return of Christ. We will have a more glorious enjoyment of it when Christ returns. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. If you really thought about verses 31 and 32, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's really clear. Thanks, Paul. Good point. Move on. And he goes, no. I've got two more verses here, and then i got another verse, and a list of things that you shouldn't really be all that worried about, and a scripture citation from Psalm 44, verse 22. He goes, all right. Paul is in the practice of overkill. Paul likes to make sure you don't forget the point. Paul likes to hammer it home. This is the rhetoric of Paul. And also he does he fits the logic in there. And he proves it. Showing, look, the systematic whole teaches this. The whole of Scripture teaches this. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Right? Are you worried about losing God's favor because you're guilty of so many sins and crimes? Okay. Who's going to bring the charge? It's a real question. Who's going who's to bring the charge? Who's going to bring a charge that brings a testimony that God's going to believe? Especially when we think about the fact that it's God who justifies. What is justification? Justification is God's declaring you righteous. Right? So he said, you know, I've judged the case. I'm declaring not guilty. Not only not guilty, but justified. Righteous. Justified under law. You're righteous. That's my testimony on the matter. I've decided the case. Somebody else comes in with charges now. Is God going to believe their testimony over his own? Over his own decision? So you can say, I've already decided the case, but you're right. Let's do this again. I've got time on my hands. I've been around forever. I'll be around forever. God's outside of time, right? He's not going to hear the charge. The charge won't be effective. It's God who justifies. God is the one who has set up the legal system. He's chosen you to be forgiven. He's sent His Son to pay your debts. He's given you faith to believe the Gospel. He's declared you to be innocent and righteous under His law and in His sight. What accuser can overcome that? Who condemns? Who condemns you? You're worried about losing the love of God? Who, who condemns you? Who's the one that pronounces damned on you? Who does that? It's Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. How does this fit together? Okay, we're worried about who condemns. Who's the judge again? Christ is the judge. He knows that he paid your debts. Your name is graven on his hands, Isaiah 49.16. He is the great unchangeable God. He died to pay for all your sins. He rose to show the acceptance of the payment. He is seated now at the right hand of the Father to be the judge, having ascended after He rose. He sat down in a throne to judge after having offered sacrifice for your sin. So He's sitting down as a king and He's sitting down as a priest. What did He do as a priest? He sat down as a priest because the sacrifice is finished and accepted. He sat down to teach as a prophet from his chair. He sat down as a priest to intercede. All propitiatory sacrifice is complete. Okay. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let's consider an extensive list. And I love this list. Okay, here's the list. How about tribulation? Maybe distress. What about persecution? Famine? Negative? Peril? Maybe sword. Right? It's like a conversation with your kids, and they're like looking for something. Is this going to work? This, 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 this? No? Okay. All right. But how about this? If these things are true, if the gospel is true, then God has united us to himself by covenant with Christ, and nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. What then are you worried about? What will separate you from the love of the one who always accomplishes his goal? What will sever you from the good end that God seeks for you? Let's think about tribulation or trial. The Greek word here is philipsis. It can be translated as affliction, pressure, crushing injury. So it comes from kind of this word for crushing or pressure. Okay. So anything that feels crushing to you, 
any afflicting thing. The weight of circumstances. Will any kind of suffering be able to remove the love of God for us? Will our suffering separate or change the love of God? Will we suffer forever? How we view our suffering makes a huge difference. It's temporary. It's temporary. That is the difference that is made between Israel and Egypt. That is the difference between us and the world. Our suffering is temporary. It serves to make a contrast. It has a purpose. You can undergo a lot of things when you understand that it serves a goal. You can exercise even. Apparently not as big of a deal to you guys as to me. Will distress, stenokaria, this word comes from sort of the idea of narrowness, so you think about walls closing in on you. So one's crushing, the other one is sort of walls, so it's kind of like the height and the depth crushing in versus the, the sides. There's a scene in the movie Inception where Leonardo DiCaprio is trying to get through this little like hallway between buildings as he's running away from people. It's basically like every dream I've ever had. I can't get through (laughs) stuff. So this narrowness thing, not being able to get away, not being able to get the person, not being able to do the thing, feeling like things are kind of going in, the walls are coming in on you. And like every spy movie ever, you roll to the side, that was easy. But not that easy in real life, right? In real life, you don't really have really easy ways to get out of the problem. And so getting out of the problem, the idea of the squeezing in, the narrowness, and the crushing down, If all earthly things feel as though they are falling in, as though they are coming and crashing in, as though they're failing us, if earthly helps seem to be taken away, if no escape is clear, if no way other than death and destruction lie before you, then will that mean that God has abandoned you? Right? Well, a lot of people read Psalm 22, right? Jesus quotes Psalm 22 on the cross, right? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, you know, People will say, and he really did. God, God, God really hated Jesus for a while, very, for a very limited time. Right? And that's not true. His attitude doesn't change towards Jesus. It wasn't this hatred there. It was the effects of hatred that were due for our sins. Jesus was not hated. God didn't change his mind towards Jesus. These things do not separate us from the love of God. We are not abandoned by God. Psalm 22 teaches... Psalm 22 teaches that there's an appearance of abandonment, but not abandonment. Jesus was not left to corruption. He was not abandoned. There's the appearance of abandonment. Contrast. Every play, every story, has the conflict. History is just a story to display the glory of God. And the play's the thing. The story's the thing. It's for displaying the glory of God. God does not hate you if you suffer. He loves you in the suffering, and the suffering is for your good. Will persecution separate us? If the enemies of the people of God rage and fight and conquer you, then 
Will that mean that God hates you? Will mockers and scorners take away the love of Christ? Will torture separate you from the love of Christ toward you? And the, will, will, will torture separate you from the knowledge of God? Can a torturer make you stop believing the gospel? Even if, like Cranmer, under torture, you succumb. Like Cranmer, that great churchman of England who helped to bring through the Reformation there, serving Henry VIII and then serving Edward. When Mary, Bloody Mary, took the throne, she tortured, threatened this old man and asked him to forsake the Reformed religion and to admit the rightness of the papacy. And he did so. He wrote it out. But then Mary decided to kill him still, to burn him at the stake. It's a kindness, really, to purge him of his sins before he went to his death. And in doing this, he recanted his recantation of the Reformed faith. He appeared before this crowd and acknowledged that it was wrong. And he said, with his hand, I offended. And so it goes first to the flame. And he burned his hand in the flame that he was going to be killed in as a part of his public recantation before the rest of him was burned. It is possible for you to fall in the midst of suffering. We can all pull a Cranmer. But the Lord does not take faith away from those whom he has given it. And though we fall, we will rise again. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Persecution will not separate you from the love of Christ. How about famine or nakedness? You think about total destitution. If productivity empties the land, if your wealth departs, if your debts climb, if your honor runs away and your shame cleaves to you, if your, if your destitution reaches the extremity of death by famine, then will you say that God has abandoned you? Is starvation and cold the sure sign that your soul is hated by God and destitute of knowledge? Did no saints die in Ukraine when 20 million of them fell by Stalin's hatred? Not a single believer there, not 20 million. Any of the famines that hit Israel, nobody, no believers ever, none of them died. The love of God is not food, and it's not clothing. How about peril? Any sort of danger? Will the power to move your soul, the power to move your soul to pain, to worry by risk, by putting evil before your eyes, bring damnation to your soul? You know, some of the horrifying things you read in the Old Testament, you think about like the Babylonian captivity, the, the killing of one's own children before one's eyes. The king of Israel at the time, sorry, the king of Judah at the time, he, that he witnessed the death of his family at the hands of the Babylonians, and then his eyes were plucked out. What's that about? It's about making it so the last thing he ever saw would be burned, etched into his mind, would have no vision to distract him, would be the death of the people he most loved. Persecution is one thing. The destruction of what you love before your eyes 
is another thing. You know, that story ends, and that king, there's this little glimmer of hope that he's given a seat at the table in Babylon. King's table. Doesn't seem like much. It's a little pointer to the fact that he has future days that are better than the present. And so there is suffering that comes. And that suffering that comes, it is not damnation. If we understand the goal, if we understand the meaning of things, and those sufferings are not the same as endless suffering, that is what hell is. When we know too late that we have erred, and we don't even really then acknowledge it. There's a suppression that is ongoing, and a guilt, a gnawing. And that's the meaninglessness of life that the unbelieving now have. The blessings are not really enjoyable, and the harms are overwhelming when you don't have the knowledge of the sovereignty of God and of seeking your good. You either just have to try to numb it out or you have to come up with lies to replace it. I am the master of my fate. Circumstances around me don't possibly overwhelm me. I can control whether I have cancer or not. The lie is palpable. How about the sword? Does crime, combat, tyranny, or war have the power to separate you from the love of Christ? Can hangmen take the knowledge of the truth from your inner man? We have to be willing to face warfare, to be willing to deal with suffering. Righteous men go to war knowing that the next arrow shot, the next bullet flung, the next missile launched could be one with their name on it. Right? And the going to warfare is for the purpose of resisting evil. And so you cannot go to war with courage without either ultimately a desire to die or a belief that doing what is good is better than living without doing that. And that's what we are engaged in. We are engaged in a spiritual warfare. How can we continue engaging in the spiritual warfare without believing that continuing to fight is better than living without the fight? You think about the responsibility of the Christian and we, we, we throw off so many of the things that people use to cope with life. You're going, well, as opposed to drowning myself in every possible moment of Netflix watching when I get home, instead what I'm going to do is any of the many duties I'd like to avoid because they're hard. Verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For we are more than conquerors. Conquerors can lose what they gain. In 
Paradise Lost, Milton has this excellent contrast. He, he has Adam and he has Samson. And with Adam, Adam is the diffident man, right? It's not really in Paradise Lost, sorry. It's, there's Paradise Lost, there's Samson Agonistes, and then there's Paradise Regained. So I just pretend like Samson Agonistes is in the middle there. I think that's what Milton intended. So just in case you're confused. He has Adam and he has Samson. And he has Adam is the diffident man. He didn't rule. He didn't reign. He didn't stop his wife from listening to the serpent. He didn't do what he needed to do to lead. And as a result, great calamity came by failure to lift the hand. Limp-wristed masculinity, which is masculinity in our day, right? And then there's the toxic masculinity of Samson, right? He's the conqueror. Let's go get the job done so that I can never work again. Let me just do the thing. And then if I could just sit back, kick back and enjoy it. How about that? Right? The conqueror attitude. And he has a third option. Right? There's the left hand and the right hand. And the third option is Christ. A diligent man. He starts and he continues. And he works. He keeps. He guards. He keeps adding to the gains. And he preserves what has been attained. He nurtures and cultivates. He guards and protects. He watches. We're more than conquerors. Conquerors can lose what they gain. Conquerors tend to lose what they gain. Tell me a conqueror who didn't lose what they gained. We are more than conquerors. Conquerors do not often enjoy what they gain. Better is little with peace than much with strife. We own all, and we cannot lose it. We will enjoy it. We have more joy in this life without total control, and we will have much greater joy in the resurrected state with total possession, no curse, and total control. We conquer now, Psalm 44, Psalm 47, under the leadership of He who conquers, Psalm 2, Psalm 110, 1 Corinthians 15. We are more than conquerors. We pick up the sword of the word. We pick up the praises. We pray. We conquer. We do dominion work. You get up. You seek to, to cultivate the earth and to grow and to preserve it. We conquer. We get and we enjoy and then there are others who build cities and pile up silver, and we get to enjoy it. Now, I think Jeff Bezos probably worked pretty hard to build Amazon. And as far as I know, he's not a believer. And he did it just so I can get one-day shipping. God meant Amazon so I can get one-day shipping. Now, as a guy who ships things, as a manufacturer, I don't really like the competition for that. But I do enjoy the fast delivery. And it was for my good. And if he converts, it's for his good. But if he doesn't, he piled up silver because he was the hewer of wood, the carver of stone, and the carrier of water for us. Matthew 10, verse 28, tells us to not fear him who kills the body but cannot build his, kill the soul, but rather that we should fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna, in hell. 
These people have it the other way around. They don't fear God. They do fear the dollar. You know, I am persuaded with Paul that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Right, death and life, right, our, our closest possession, the separation of body and soul, that right there, that's not going to stop us. Right? Well, how could death separate us? Well, you know, is, is dying going to end our thinking? Are we going to stop knowing God? No. The soul continues on. How about life? If I live long enough, maybe I'll forsake God. No, he will preserve you. But you have long days. He will uphold your faith, and he will give you strength to carry on. Angels and principalities and powers. Okay, angels or demons or states. Can any of them separate you from the love of God? They can't. Angels and demons are pretty powerful things. They can lay waste to snack ribs over a 100,000-man army in one night. But they cannot separate you from the love of God. They cannot separate you from the knowledge of God. They cannot cause you to stop believing. There's a concern in Hamlet when Hamlet is told that there is a, uh, a ghost of his father. And there are guards that don't want him to go and talk to the ghost. And they say, that ghost might take away your reason if it's a demon. Demons cannot make you go mad. God upholds your faith. Faith involves understanding. Understanding involves the ability to distinguish A from non-A. God upholds your faith. You're worried about living long from dementia or Alzheimer's or any sort of thing like that? That cannot destroy your faith. You cannot lose your faith. You worry about the future or things that are happening now? You can scan the whole of time. You cannot lose God. There's nothing in the whole of time that can take away your knowledge of God. The height and depth of things, look at the whole of creation. There's nothing there with the power to take away the knowledge of God. All created things, everything but God, all things that are temporal, none of them have the capability of taking away the knowledge of God. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord will not be taken away. We are loved unchangeably, omnipotently, and omnisciently. God has an attitude that will not change, and he seeks and accomplishes our good. We have a legal status in justice being united to Christ. God does not change. His justice does not change. His attitudes do not change. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Right. So you sit there and you go, how am I doing? Like, how am I doing it? Like, earning and keeping the favor of God. Not great. You're doing really badly at it. Really bad. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You're breaking the law. You're doing it like all the time. But we're not consumed, O sons of Jacob, because the attitudes of God do not change. That's the argument. You read Malachi. It's not a happy book. There's some promises, and those are encouraging. But the people there. Not getting a good report card. And the reason that God doesn't hate the people of God is because He does not change. Now, we have this last line that we're talking about today. Um, 
that we didn't discuss here. It's up earlier. Okay, it's at verse 36. And verse 36 is that quote from the psalm that we're about to sing. It says, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. It's even possible that we have all of the suffering we just talked about, not even for our own sins, but very specifically because people hate us because of our testimony to the truth. And we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. It's an easy thing. It's a cheap thing. We're a cheap thing to kill. That happens in history. Spanish Inquisition. Plenty of Protestants. The persecution of believers by the Babylonians. Right? You can, you can find many, many persecutions. We're killing Christians. It was easy for the bad guys. Counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's the reality of the wickedness that we have to face in the world. Uh, let's, not, let's not pull back. Let's not shirk. Let's not lie about it. This is the reality. And, and frankly, you know, if you've studied what happened in Mao's China or Stalin's Russia, and you look at what happens with taking over institutions and the and the, the teaching institutions in terms of how communism is spread and, and how critical theory is used to create division and hatred and to remove the humanity of people and to suggest that you have to treat people in a certain way because of a category that they fit into that's not their humanity and not because of law keeping but because of some sort of economic status or some sort of privileged status or something like that the dehumanizing effects of those things it does not end in peace, love and harmony and so we have to use the truth to overcome that but it is not an unbelievable thing that within the next generation that you would see wide-scale, full-fledged persecution in the United States of America. So you look at how the Jews dealt with that, and you think about Purim, gathering to defend themselves. You think about the ability to prophetically speak against, you pray against, you do those things. That's all stuff that needs to be thought about. But we shouldn't pretend like, because we're Americans, we can never deal with persecution. It's our birthright as Americans to not have to suffer for the sake of truth. We cannot lose the love of Christ. We cannot lose the knowledge of God. And so that should give you strength. We're more than conquerors. Other comments, questions, or objections from those with floor rights? Mr. Nye? I had a couple of questions. The first is clarification. A couple of times in your teaching, um, you use the phrase, if, you, if God is in your favor, I, I just wanted to make sure, um, I think you, you meant if you are in God's favor, uh, but I just wanted to make sure you didn't mean something else different than that, because there, there was a couple other times where you, you said, if, if you are in God's favor. Sure, I, both of so. Having the favor of God is one thing, and being in his favor uh, would be the other thing I mean. So if I said something that's confusing, obviously us having favor towards God uh, is not the unchangeable thing that is the anchor for our insurance. Our, our God's favor towards us is, so I didn't mean to say anything different. That's okay. Yeah, that, that's true. If, if God is in our favor, we love God. Sure, but I didn't. There's no point in time in which I was trying to communicate that 
if we have a love towards God, that's the thing. So, um, okay. Thank you. Anything else? Uh, yes. Um, so, for correction, um, you were talking about um, the king of, uh, of Judah who had his eyes, his, uh, his sons, his family, his slaughter. Before him, his eyes plucked out, and you said later on he was um, he was brought to the king's table and given provisions. That those were not the same king. Um, Zedekiah um, was the one who had his eyes plucked out. And after he rebelled against um, against the king, after the king set him up, and as as a puppet king, after he took Jehoiakim captive um, to Babylon, um, nothing is ever said about Zedekiah after he was um, his eyes were gouged out. He was taken in fetters to, to Babylon. Jehoiakim, who was the king that was removed before um, Nebuchadnezzar set Zedekiah up. Forgive me for the error. So the same king was not the one who was put at the table, who had his eyes plucked out. So, and uh, so forgive me for the error there. Thank you for checking. Um, that's why impromptu things are dumb. All right. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would forgive me for failing to teach accurately about the last king of Judah. I ask that you would cause the truth that was communicated to stand. Thank you for causing falsehood to be corrected and for me to uh, uh, benefit from that for my own learning and for those who are here to benefit as well. Uh, I thank you for using the ordinance of question asking to help to safeguard the teaching. I ask that you would cause us to hold on to you and that we would be preserved that you would cause us to have a great strength and assurance that we would be able to carry on that we would see suffering in light of the great weight of glory to be revealed in us we ask these things in Christ's name